the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program and Clark Hilton is engineering. Well, I have to see if I can get this all straight because we had one program planned at a technical glitch, and we'll be presenting a slightly different program. Uh, today, we will be talking with Jarrett Stepman, who's the editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast on the Green New Deal. He refers to it as a Trojan horse for socialism. We'll share that conversation. I did have the opportunity to speak earlier today with the founder and president of the Timothy Plan, and I'd been promoting that uh, earlier this week. However, that uh, conversation was somehow lost, and so we won't have the opportunity to share that with you. We'll see if we can maybe recreate that at some point uh, in the future. But you will have an opportunity to hear from... Uh, Paul Kentz, who is the author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. That's coming up, uh, both interviews in the 5 o'clock hour. First, uh, looking at some of the developing news stories of the day. The president, of course, last night made his case for funding his long-promised border wall, taking his case directly to the nation with an address from the Oval Office, his first, and calling the surge of illegal immigration a growing humanitarian and security crisis. The president's speech drew seemingly deep lines in the sand. Republicans and Democrats planned to meet today to continue negotiations on ending the partial federal government shutdown over border wall funding, which is now in its third week. That took place. We'll let you know what happened a bit later in the program. Well, the president drew a a correlation between border security and the opioid crisis and drug deaths in the United States, calling for the closure of the pipeline that enables vast quantities of illegal drugs, including meth, heroin, cocaine and fentanyl to cross the border. Now, in the interest of accuracy, most of those drugs make their way through Uh, the legal channels of immigration rather than those crossing the border illegally. But nonetheless, the president also paid tribute to several Americans killed by suspected illegal immigrants, including California Police Corporal Ronald Singh, whom authorities say was killed the day after Christmas by an illegal immigrant suspected of driving drunk. And in a joint Democratic rebuttal to the president's address, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi accused the president of fear-mongering and manufacturing a crisis to distract the public from the turmoil in his administration and urged him to sign legislation to end the shutdown. Now, it's always interesting to me when a rebuttal is issued that doesn't directly relate to anything that was specifically said in the speech because rebuttals are written before speeches are given and they're just a general objection to whoever happens to occupy the White House. So it wasn't necessarily constructive in dealing factually with the, the details in the president's speech, but that's typical. You'll see it in the State of the Union address, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, and we've seen it many times before. Nonetheless, that was the, uh, uh, the tack they chose to take. They went on to say, we can reopen the government and continue to work through disagreements about policy, Schumer said. We can secure our border without an expensive, ineffective wall, which, by the way, Schumer and most of uh, at least nine of the 11 Democrats who are in leadership this time around in the House all voted in favor of a wall 
on more than one occasion. They went on to say, and we can welcome legal immigrants and refugees without compromising safety and security. The symbol of America should be the Statue of Liberty, not a 30-foot wall. Now, the important thing to remember is that the Statue of Liberty was what they saw, but they actually went through a process, and many people were sent back. And not everyone who arrived in the United States was permitted to um, uh, remain in the United States. Well, in her remarks, Pelosi said the president's statements during the partial shutdown have been full of misinformation and even malice and accused the administration of practicing cruel and counterproductive policies at the southern border. Again, neither uh, responded directly to the statistics and information the president uh, referenced during that speech, but rebuttals are often, well, always Uh, manufactured before the actual speech is given. It would have been helpful. Maybe a slight delay would have been helpful uh, to address the specific um, details, but that's the nature of the game. Meanwhile, Ocasio-Cortez has targeted the president again. The freshman socialist representative once again took aim at the president, uh, this time on Twitter, by simply labeling him a racist. Ocasio-Cortez gave multiple examples of what she deemed to be the president's behavior and said Americans should feel uncomfortable with the president's behavior. Her condemnation came days after a 60 Minutes interview where she accused him of providing a platform for racists. Ginsburg has missed a second day, Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg missed a second straight day of arguments on Tuesday, sparking concerns about her recovery from cancer surgery last month. The court didn't indicate how long she could be absent, but Chief Justice John Roberts said Tuesday that Ginsburg would participate and read from transcripts and briefs, according to the Wall Street Journal. Her chair was vacant for a second day while Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh delivered his first opinion in the court. Ginsburg is 85. She's had two cancerous growths removed from her left lung. Uh, Last month, she was discharged from Memorial Sloan Ketterling Cancer Center in New York City on Christmas Day. The growths were spotted on her lungs after she fractured ribs in a fall in early November. They were found to be malignant. However, there was no evidence of uh, it metastasizing or growing elsewhere. But at 85, it's it's unclear when or if she'll return to the bench. She fully intends to, but whether or not that will be possible will be determined by her recovery. Well, Facebook, Twitter, they've turned to uh, conservatives to fight bias. Uh, YouTube is also on that list. They're under fire for alleged political bias and censorship against conservatives. And reportedly, they're turning to right-leaning groups to combat their woes in policing content. According to the Wall Street Journal, the social media giants have... Um, have sought input from hundreds of groups, including a growing number of those that lean to the right in what kind of content should be banned and what is considered acceptable. Facebook has privately sought advice from Family Research Council and its president, Tony Perkins, according to sources. Twitter chief executives Jack Dorsey and the Journal reports uh, recently hosted dinners with conservatives, including Grover Norquist, founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. Advisors on the left reportedly include the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, I don't know if those uh, groups met at the same time, but that would have been a very interesting meeting, given the fact that the Southern Poverty Law Center has uh, spread misinformation uh, specifically about the Family Research Council for quite some time and has been held responsible for the shooting that took place there uh, some years back. Well, the most innocent victims of the border crisis, well, the crisis of the heart and the crisis of the soul. Last month, 20,000 migrant children were illegally brought into the United States. The president called it a humanitarian crisis, a dramatic increase. These children are used as human pawns by vicious coyotes, ruthless gangs. One in three women are sexually assaulted on the dangerous trek up through Mexico. That uh, number is actually four in five. Women and children are the biggest victims by far of our broken system, the president said in the Oval Office 
address to the nation on the need for border wall funding. Well, what results uh, resulted from that talk and meetings that were held today? We'll get to that in just a few minutes as well. Well, on this day in 2009, the Illinois House voted 114 to 1 to impeach Governor Rod Blagojevich, who defiantly insisted again that he has committed no crime. The Illinois State uh, Senate rather, would unanimously vote to remove Blagojevich from office 20 days later. And on this day in 2001, Linda Chavez withdraws from her bid uh, to be president President-elect George W. Bush's labor secretary because of controversy over an illegal immigrant who'd once lived with her. And on this day in 1987, the White House released a January 1986 memorandum prepared for President Ronald Reagan by Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, showing a link between U.S. arms sales to Iran and the release of American hostages in Lebanon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, last night the president spoke. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer spoke. The president met with Republican leaders earlier today, met with Democrats immediately following. So what happened? Well, the president apparently walked out of border security meeting with Pelosi because she rejected his pitch for the wall. Well, according to news reports, the president did walk out of a White House meeting with congressional leaders uh, this afternoon over the partial government shutdown after House Speaker Pelosi again rejected supporting new funding for a border wall, according to those in the meeting. Now, they characterize that differently. According to Republicans, he walked in the meeting with candy, was uh, personable. According to the Democrats, he slammed his uh, fists on the table and walked out in a huff. So you can decide for yourself which version you want to accept. But speaking to reporters after the brief, New York Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, said the president just got up and walked out. He asked Speaker Pelosi, will you agree to my wall? She said no. And he just got up and said, well, we don't have anything to discuss. Well, the president in a tweet called the meeting a total waste of time and appeared to confirm that he left after Pelosi's answer. I asked what is uh, going to happen in 30 days. If I quickly open things up, are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or barrier? Nancy Pelosi said no. I said bye. Nothing else works. Trump tweeted. Well, Pelosi said after the meeting that the president was petulant. Schumer said the president slammed his hands on the table in frustration. But Vice President Mike Pence and other Republicans speaking to reporters afterward denied that happened. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy said the president was willing to make a deal at the meeting. I just listened to Senator Schumer, McCarthy said, a Republic, or rather a California Republican. I know he uh, uh, complained the time that you had uh, cameras in the meeting. I think we need to bring them back because what he described in the meeting to be is totally different than what took place. Again, disputing the Democrat versus Republican version. The meeting in the Situation Room Wednesday afternoon came ahead of the president's planned trip to the southern Texas border tomorrow. Earlier, the president traveled to Capitol Hill to meet the Senate to meet with Senate Republicans, saying afterward, we have a very unified party. Still, a growing number of moderate Republicans like Susan Collins of Maine, Cory Gardner of Colorado, appear uncomfortable with the toll the partial shutdown is taking. The president has said he might declare a national emergency and try to authorize the wall on his own if Congress won't approve the $5.7 billion he's asking. I think we might work a deal, and if we don't, I might go that route, he said. Well, past meetings with uh, Democrats have resulted in both sides digging in, with Trump insisting on nearly $6 billion for the border wall, and Democrats saying that they uh, they won't entertain the discussion until Congress uh, passes uh, 
and Trump signs a package reopening shuttered federal agencies. The president's um, primetime address on Tuesday night saw both camps drifting even further apart, with the president declaring a humanitarian and security crisis and vowing to protect America, so help me God. And Democratic congressional leaders saying Trump is working to manufacture a crisis, stoke fear and divert attention from the turmoil in his administration. Well, how the two sides will bridge that difference and how long they're going to resist a compromise remains unclear. The mounting impact of the partial shutdown, which initially was limited, but will end Increase as more federal workers miss paychecks this cycle and services like those at national parks suffer is likely to increase pressure on Congress and the White House to forge a deal in the coming days. What that deal will ultimately be will depend on who actually blinks. Well, last night, the president declared a growing humanitarian and security crisis on our southern border. He said all Americans are hurt by uncontrolled illegal migration. He said it strains public resources and drives down jobs and wages. Among those hardest hit are African-Americans and Hispanic Americans. Our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs. He went on to say, including meth, heroin, cocaine and fentanyl, 90 percent of which floods across from our southern border. The president said in the last two years, ICE officers made 266,000 arrests of aliens with criminal records, including those charged or convicted of 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes and 4,000 violent killings. Uh, Last month, the president went on to say 20,000 migrant children were illegally brought into the United States, a dramatic increase. These children are used as human pawns by vicious coyotes and ruthless gangs. One in three women are sexually assaulted on the dangerous trek up through Mexico, he said, and that women and children are the biggest victims by far of our broken system. Uh, The president also said in his very brief remarks that the gangs associated with Mexican cartels, uh, thanks in large measure to so-called sanctuary cities, have poured across our border and now infest many urban centers. This is the tragic reality of illegal immigration on our southern border. This is the cycle of human suffering that I am determined to end. He went on to say that our proposal was developed by law enforcement professionals and border agents at the Department of Homeland Security. These are the resources they have requested to properly perform their mission. The proposal from Homeland Security includes cutting-edge technology for detecting drugs, weapons, illegal contraband, and many other things. We have requested more agents, immigration judges, uh, bed space to process the sharp rise in unlawful migration fueled by our very strong economy. Our plan also contains an urgent request for humanitarian assistance and medical support. Furthermore, the president went on to say we have asked Congress... Uh, to close border security loopholes so that illegal immigrant children can be safely and humanely returned back to their homes. Finally, the president said as part of an overall approach to border security, law enforcement professionals have requested $5.7 billion for a physical barrier. At the request of Democrats, it will be a steel barrier rather than concrete wall. This barrier is absolutely critical to border security. It also, uh, It's also what our professionals at the border want and need. This is just common sense. The border wall would very quickly pay for itself. He went on to say the cost of illegal drugs exceeds $500 billion a year, vastly more than the $5.7 billion we have requested from Congress. The wall will also be paid for indirectly by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. Uh, that speech was followed, of course, by comments from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi uh, rebutting 
generally what the president has said in the past, but not addressing specifically what was said in the speech from the Oval Office. Senator Chuck Schumer um, uh, has repeatedly supported a physical barrier, the president pointed out, in the past, along with many other Democrats. They changed their mind only after I was elected president. He went on to point out that, in fact, Schumer, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama all supported strong border enforcement until they turned their backs on blue collar workers and decided the influx of illegal immigrants might be the Democrats' best pipeline for future voters. Democrats in Congress, the president said, have refused to acknowledge the crisis and they have refused to provide uh, border agents with the tools they desperately need to protect our families and our nation. The federal government remains shut down for one reason and one reason only, because Democrats will not fund border security uh, vis-a-vis the wall that the president has demanded. Some have suggested a barrier is immoral, the president responding to Uh, Comments made by Nancy Pelosi and others. He said that um, then why do wealthy politicians build walls, fences and gates around their homes? They don't build walls because they hate the people on the outside, but because they love the people on the inside. The only thing that is immoral is the politicians to do nothing and continue to allow more innocent people to be so horribly victimized. Over the last several years, I've met with dozens of families Uh, whose loved ones were stolen by illegal immigration. He went on to talk about that. He said then to every member of Congress, pass a bill that ends this crisis to every citizen, call Congress and tell them to finally, after all these decades, secure our border. Well, that was the president's speech. It was followed by his detractors. Uh, The president, as uh, we've said, was going to fly to the border on Thursday to meet with those on the front lines of national security and humanitarian crisis. Um, the uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi accused the president of asking uh, Democrats to support the border security policies um, uh, that represent a manufactured crisis, both humanitarian and security uh, crisis. Um, when 2000 people are crossing our border illegally every day, have a backlog of 800,000 asylum cases that are backlogged in our courts right now. We're being deluged and we do not have the capacity to deal with the inundation of people coming across our border illegally. It has to be addressed. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader uh, in tandem gave the Democrat response to the president's address in their brief rebuttals. Both impugned the president's motives for seeking a border wall with emotive language, including uh, words like malice, stoking fear, obsession, cruel, temper tantrum. Neither actually addressed the merits of the president's argument. Rather, they insisted that the president is simply manufacturing a crisis in order to get his own way. And again, these rebuttals are oftentimes uh, constructed before the speech is actually given. Pelosi and Schumer ignored the facts of the so-called distant past that Democrats, just as much as Republicans for the past 20 years, have been ringing alarm bells over the crisis for, of illegal immigration. Schumer and other Democrats have voted and called for a border wall. Schumer called a wall expensive and ineffective this time around. But how does that stack up to not building a barrier? The president asked for a mere $5 billion to build a wall to help deter illegal border crossing, while a 2017 study conservatively estimates the taxpayer burden of illegal immigration, as I mentioned a moment ago, is $155 billion annually. It's disingenuous for Schumer to claim he's concerned about the wall's expense. And for the record, Congress has already authorized redistributing $10.6 billion in taxpayer funds to Mexico for its southern border security. Uh, Furthermore, Pelosi and Schumer demanded that the president capitulate to their legislative effort to end the shutdown and then negotiate over the wall. But what motive would there be to negotiate if uh, government was uh, reopened? The answer uh, historically seems obvious. Americans have um, seen Lucy pull the football away from 
Charlie Brown too many times in the past, and this would be another edition of that. Well, Senator Lindsey Graham and others also spoke, Senate Minority Leader, rather Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, in response to last night's speech. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor and commentary writer for The Daily Signal, co-host of the Right Side of History podcast on the Green New Deal, a Trojan horse for socialism, as he puts it. We'll talk with him. We'll also hear from Paul Kentz, author of Oswald Chambers, A Life in Pictures. Well, as I mentioned, there were uh, many responses to the president's speech, some less flattering than others. But um, Senator Lindsey Graham declared, I'm flabbergasted to hear from my Democrat colleagues who have voted for billions of dollars in border security money. Uh, that is, is a manufactured um, a crisis. Was it manufactured when Obama wanted the money? No. Why did you give the money to Obama and Bush if it was a manufactured crisis? End quote. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell slammed his Democratic colleagues, saying President Trump reaffirmed his commitment to addressing the humanitarian and security crisis at our nation's southern border. His proposal to increase security through physical barriers suits the reality on the ground. It's what career border uh, patrol experts support and are asking for, and it simply builds on earlier legislation that Senate Democrats, like then-Senator Obama, then-Senator Clinton, Senator Schumer, previously supported with enthusiasm. Refusal to negotiate is not due to any principled objection, but simply due to partisan spite for the president. For the men and women of the Border Patrol, for the safety of American families, and for all Americans who deserve a fully operational federal government, I sincerely hope my Democratic colleagues will come to the table and help deliver a solution. Well, both sides uh, dug in on their uh, version of the solution and whether or not there's a crisis. In other words, um, nothing was accomplished today, and one can only hope something will be done tomorrow. Well, President Trump today said that he's ordered the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to stop sending money to California to deal with forest fires unless they get their act together. Billions of dollars are sent to the states of California or the state of California for forest fires that, with proper forest management, would never happen, he tweeted, unless they get their act together, which is unlikely. I have ordered FEMA to send no more money. It is a disgraceful situation in lives and money, end quote. Well, November's fire in the northern California town of Paradise was the deadliest U.S. wildfire in a century, killing at least 85 people and destroying nearly 14,000 homes. The president sparked controversy uh, when he blamed the wildfires on poor forest management, which played a role. But I'm not sure you can blame the whole um, problem on that singularly. And he threatened to withhold payments to the state. In an interview with Fox News Sunday, the president praised the firefighters but said the big problem we have is management. He said that responders were raking bushes that were totally dry and on fire. They should have been uh, all raked out. You uh, wouldn't have the fires, if that had been the case, you need forest management. It has to be. I'm not saying uh, that in a negative way or a positive way. I'm just saying the facts, he said. Well, California Democrats reacted angrily uh, to the president's decision. It's absolutely shocking for President Trump to suggest he would deny disaster assistance to communities destroyed by wildfire. Senator Dianne Feinstein said in a statement, attacking victims is yet another low for this president. 
Senator Kamala Harris said in a tweet that Democrats and Republicans should work together to fight climate change, not play politics by threatening to withhold money from survivors of a deadly natural disaster. Now, what the president meant um, by withholding funds seems clear. FEMA is the disaster emer- emergency disaster recovery program. Uh, and to withhold money from those who survived the event is not withholding money per se from California, but from California residents. We'll see how this plays out. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has given no indication when Justice uh, Ruth Gator Bader Ginsburg rather might return to uh, the bench. She missed her um, third day, third straight day of oral arguments today while uh, recuperating from cancer surgery. She is 85. Her absences this week from oral arguments were her first since joining the court back in 93, stirring speculation about her recovery. And again, she's 85. Recovery will take some time, but she did make provision uh, to read oral arguments and uh, to participate in ultimate decisions. Chief Justice John Roberts announced from the bench that Ginsburg was continuing to participate from home. This is not unprecedented, as uh, the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist also participated and even authored several opinions while undergoing cancer treatment from 2004 to 2005. But all eyes will be on the court when public sessions resume on Monday for indications of Ginsburg's status. It's not just that she wasn't on the bench these last few days, but whether or not she will be capable of returning to the bench and if that presents another opportunity for um, the president to appoint another Supreme Court justice. A court spokesperson said there has yet to be a date decided for when she will return to the bench, but that is her intention. The 85-year-old justice underwent lung surgery in New York City last month. The discovery came incidentally during tests after she fractured several ribs during the fall, uh, a fall in November. A uh, court statement said both nodules removed during surgery were found to be malignant, uh, but scans performed before surgery indicate no evidence of disease elsewhere in her body. No further treatment is planned. Uh, Ginsburg has dealt with a series of health concerns in recent years. She broke two ribs in 2012 and previously battled two bouts of cancer in 99 and 2009. She also had a silent, um, uh, rather a stent implanted in her heart to open a blocked artery in 2014. The Harvard Law School Educated Justice was nominated to the Supreme Court by former President Bill Clinton in 1993 to replace retiring Justice Byron White. Ginsburg said Clinton's first Supreme Court or was his first Supreme Court pick. Prior to ascending to the Supreme Court, she became the first woman to receive tenure at Columbia University Law School and is also the co-founder of the American Civil Liberties Union Women's Rights Project. Ginsburg is the oldest member of the court, and her retirement has been a topic of great speculation. However, she reportedly hired clerks for the term that extends into 2020, indicating that she has no plans to leave soon. It may not be in her her, uh, hands to ultimately make that decision, but her intention has been made quite clear. Well, the U.S. trade delegation uh, that met with Chinese officials in Beijing returned to the United States later today after what the U.S. officials called a good few days. Asian stock markets jumped after the talks were extended for an unscheduled third day, fueling optimism that the world's largest economies can strike a trade deal and avoid disrupting the global economy. Well, this week's meetings are the first face-to-face talk since the president and Chinese, I should say President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping, agreed in December to a 90-day truce in a trade war that's roiled global financial markets. Originally scheduled for uh, Monday and Tuesday, the negotiations were extended by a day with signs of progress on issues including purchases of U.S. farm and energy commodities and increasing access to China's markets. 
Uh, however, people familiar with the talks told Reuters uh, yesterday that the two sides were further apart on Chinese structural reforms that the uh, Trump administration is demanding in order to stop the alleged theft and forced transfer of U.S. technology and on how uh, Beijing will be held to its promises. The president has said that he'll proceed with raising tariffs to 25 percent from 10 percent uh, on $200 billion worth of Chinese imports if no deal is reached by the 2nd of March. And what's widely seen as a goodwill gesture, China on Tuesday issued long-awaited approvals for the import of five genetically modified crops, which would boost its purchases of U.S. grains as farmers decide uh, which crops to plant in the spring. So I imagine there will be reports on how things went in the coming days. Well, the Republicans had both the House and the Senate before uh, the House was taken uh, by Democrats this last time around with the promise uh, by the Republicans that they were going to address the, the deficit and the debt. Well, under uh, Republicans, they increased the debt $7.9 trillion in eight years. The recently deposed majority increased the federal de- deficit by um, $7.9 trillion in those eight years. And at the close of business on the 4th of January, the day before the Republicans took control of the House, the debt was, uh, well, significant, according to the Treasury Department. On the 3rd, the last day before the uh, Uh, Control was uh, turned over. Uh, So under the Republican House majorities in four Congresses, the debt climbed $7.9 trillion. In fact, under the Republican-controlled House, the federal debt increased at an average uh, rate of some 31.374 per second. Uh, Some Republicans may claim that they should not be blamed for the massive increase in the federal debt during the eight years they control the House. They may say for Four of those eight years, the Democrats controlled the Senate, or uh, for six of those eight years, Barack Obama was president. But the Constitution says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in, con- in um, consequence of appropriations made by law. And no law may be enacted unless it passes the House. A Republican majority House approved every one of the federal spending laws enacted over the past eight years. Not only that, but all of the spending laws enacted since January of uh, 2017, when President Donald Trump was inaugurated, have been approved by a Republican majority House, a Republican majority Senate and a Republican president. How do Republicans do at controlling the debt during that limited time when they held all three elected branches of the federal government? Well, the answer seems clear. Not very well, despite promises that were made prior to that um, configuration, majorities in both chambers. Coming up, we'll talk about uh, the Electoral College and what impact that might have if, in fact, uh, efforts to eliminate it or to modify it are successful. It's a major undertaking to amend the Constitution, but it has been proposed. We'll talk more about that. Also, later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jarrett Stepman. He's the editor and uh, commentary writer for The Daily Signal. We're going to talk about the proposed Green um, New Deal He refers to it as a Trojan horse for socialism. We'll look at some of the major proposals and anticipate getting a bit closer, uh, giving it a closer look um, in the days ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the first acts of a new Congress usually hold pretty great significance. They set sort of the tone for what's to come. If so, America should be very interested in the new Democrat-led Congress and some of the proposals, uh, one of which uh, includes getting rid of the Electoral College. 
And one of the first acts of business last Thursday, hours after the new Congress was sworn in, came from a Tennessee Democrat, Representative Steve Cohen, reported by the Daily Caller. His big idea, amend the Constitution to abolish the Electoral College. Well, under Article 2 of the Constitution, both the president and vice president are decided by a group of electors chosen by a method determined by the individual state legislators. Now, Cohen's proposed amendment reads, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives on uh, rather to which the Senate or the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no Senate or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Well, if it sounds innocent. It's not so much. The idea of a is to neuter the Electoral College and turn the election of the president and vice president over to a simple majority vote. More than a century ago, we amended our Constitution to provide for the direct election of U.S. senators, Cohen points out in a press release. It is um, a pastime to directly erect uh, to elect <laughs> directly elect our president and vice president, he suggests. Uh, he's already has three sponsors signed up for this um, idea. Not surprisingly, two of them from California. Despite what you may have heard in the uh, in the media, this is uh, an idea whose time has not come. It would not only be anti-democratic, that's with a small d, uh, but could actually lead to the disillusion of the nation. Well, that may be a bit of an overstatement, but in an editorial on Investors Business Daily, they suggest it could be that dramatic. And those who propose this idea betray a shocking lack of historical and civics knowledge and appreciation for how our nation works. That's especially true of elected officials who should know better. Well, this is a long-held pipe dream, um, but members of Congress are not, it's not limited to this uh, notion to members of Congress. Currently, there is a movement called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which you believe uh, live rather on either uh, the West or the, the left or the right coast is uh, pretty favorable. But if you live elsewhere in the country, the flyover country, not so much in terms of your influence. Under the deal, states that sign on would agree to give their state presidential electors to whatever candidate wins the national vote, even if that candidate loses that state. Already, 12 blue states in Washington, D.C. have signed on. The agreement will only go into effect if states representing the 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency sign on as of last summer. Uh, They were short just 85. Well, the compact, which has 12 blue states and the District of Columbia on board, would become effective only after gaining enough states to equal 270 votes or a majority of the Electoral College, the same number required to elect the president. Uh, They're now just 98 Electoral College votes short. So why is this important? The Electoral College has kept bigger states from bullying and pushing around the smaller states, along with the Senate, in which um, each state gets two senators, regardless of size, and Democrats want to get rid of that, too. The Electoral College gives small states a voice, one that would certainly be smothered by the larger states, or at least the coasts, if uh, that were not the case. By the way, many of those small states are traditionalist, small-town-oriented, conservative, and Republican. Red states, in short, getting rid of the Electoral College would give blue states political domination over red states. Democrats don't give a hoot about... Um, that, although their politicians, just like the, Republic, the Republicans are 
and seeking an advantage is what politicians do. Well, under their vision, the 50 states would wither away in terms of power and autonomy. They would merely be geographical descriptions beholden entirely to the federal government. Well, this kind of democracy, in quotes, means states like California and and New York with their huge dysfunctional cities and large Democratic majorities would become, in effect, geographical dictators to the rest of us. Uh, It would also result in far more power residing in a corrupt, centralized government. It uh, moves us inevitably, invariably, toward a socialization of America. If you doubt that, recall that under the now-defunct Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the individual republics had theoretical autonomy. They, in fact, had none. All powers and rights resided with the central government. Well, the same thing would happen here. Imagine a semi-permanent class of rulers in Washington, D.C., with the powers over all Americans, but operating only in the interests of a majority. It would eventually lead to a loss of personal rights and almost certainly a rewriting of the Bill of Rights to end our freedom as we know it. Well, that anyone seriously entertains this idea is shocking and a testament to the decline in public education in America. It also shows just how uh, far we are drifting. Uh, This kind of extremism is now mainstream thought in some quarters. To tinker with the Electoral College risks the greatest political success story in human history, the United States of America, with all of its flaws and historical um, flaws at that. Well, America's election system has operated smoothly for over 200 years because the Electoral College accomplishes its intended purpose. Tara Ross, who's a lawyer and author of Enlightened Democracy, the case for the Electoral College, writes, going on to say that America's presidential election process preserves federalism, prevents chaos, grants definitive electoral outcomes, and prevents tyrannical and unreasonable rule. She wrote in a piece for the Heritage Foundation that the founding fathers created a stable, well-planned, and carefully designed system And it works, but we'll see how long it works. In creating the Electoral College, the founders very carefully and intentionally kept us from having a pure democracy because pure democracy amounts to mob rule. Get a 51 percent majority for anything and it becomes law. Such countries, the founders knew from deep study of history, inevitably led to disaster, chaos and collapse. No electoral college. Well, some states might hate losing their ancient rights and autonomy so much that they decide to secede. Um, Again, that might be a bit um, dramatic, but nonetheless, it could happen if the flyover states, as they're often uh, referred to, uh, feel that they have become disenfranchised. Well, we'll continue to follow this uh, piece of legislation. As I mentioned, amending the Constitution uh, is a challenging thing to do. In this case, the states would cede certain authority that would fall short of an amendment. It would uh, redefine terms and practices. So we'll see what happens and we'll follow the uh, Uh, follow the progress of it. But again, one of the first things that was done on the first day when the Democrats took control of the House last Thursday. Well, most Democrats now identify as liberal rather than moderate or conservative. A Gallup poll released Tuesday found making the first time since the polling giant began asking the question in the 1990s. This shouldn't be altogether surprising, but Monday's poll found that 51 percent of Democrats self-identified as liberal in 2018, up slightly from 50 percent in 2017. The percentage of liberals has sharply climbed in recent years, Gallup noted, with 38 percent identifying as liberal in 2008. Roughly a third of Democrats or 34 percent identified as moderates in 2018. Members of the Republican Party have remained more staunchly conservative, pollsters found, with 73 percent identifying as conservative in 2018 and just 22 percent calling themselves moderate. I'd like to see the definition for conservative, given some of the 
uh, legislation and the debt. But nonetheless, that's how they've self-identified. At least 70 percent of Republicans have identified as conservative since 2008. Monday's poll was based on telephone interviews um, of random adults in 2018, the margin of error about 1 percent. The poll results came as uh, Democrats have retaken the majority in the House with a caucus that contains a number of high-profile progressives, such as Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who pushed for policies like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. We'll talk about more in the next office, uh, next hour. thought it rather interesting that Whoopi Goldberg uh, gave uh, Ocasio-Cortez something of a tongue-lashing earlier today on The View, suggesting that she needs to sit down quietly and learn the job before uh, traipsing around the country making great pronouncements about things uh, Whoopi Goldberg seemed to suggest she knew little of. So we'll see what happens uh, with the media darling in the days ahead. But anyway, most uh, Democrats identifying as liberals. Again, not altogether surprising, but these are numbers that confirm what impressions um, we might have had. Republicans self-identify as conservative policies, sometimes not so much. 59 minutes after 4 o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest makes the point that the Green New Deal, and we'll explain what that is if you're unfamiliar, is really a Trojan horse for socialism. If there's one positive thing in this Green New Deal uh, and what it does is that it brings to light the fact that much of the environmental agenda is a thinly veiled vehicle for implementing far-left socialism. Well, my guest is Jarrett Stepman. He's editor and commentator, uh, writer for The Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast on the Green New Deal, the Trojan horse for socialism. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I want to begin by just uh, explaining what the Green New Deal is. We're hearing the phrase a lot, but I'm not sure everybody understands what is it intended, what it is intended to do. Well, so it's actually a proposal that's been backed by a, a newly elected representative, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and has actually the backing of about 40 Democrats in Congress. And uh, I, I think on the surface, it's uh, a, a, a legislation that most people think would be tackling climate change. But uh, actually, the, the bill itself is, is much more extreme than just trying to combat the effects of climate change. In fact, it does a number of things that are also uh, part of these, you know, kind of far-left ideas like uh, Medicare for All. It has a plan for essentially coverage of uh, socialized medicine. It also has a, a universal minimum income uh, attachment to this deal. So it really goes beyond just this kind of anti, you know, stopping climate change kind of deal. And it, it really has a lot of support. Now, I think it has support in large part because people don't know exactly what's in it and because they don't understand the costs of, of this legislation, but it does have a groundswell of support, and it has, certainly has a, a kind of nice-sounding name that, that appeals to uh, many Americans. Uh, one of the things that I think people are hearing about is the suggestion that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is suggesting that taxes as high as 70 to 80 percent um, be um, put on the wealthiest to pay for this, uh, this Green New Deal, that everyone has to pay, in quotes, their fair share. 
Right. It's interesting. So this was actually came up in a 60 Minutes interview, and I would actually say that that, that number that she threw out there, 70%, which is actually uh, very high, is weirdly uh, one of the most moderate parts of this legislation. In fact, it would, wouldn't even come close to paying uh, for all the proposals. So this idea that there's just going to be this tax on, on the rich at the, the tippy top, as she said, uh, is actually really one of the most uh, one of the most moderate parts of the deal, if that can actually be believed. So I, I think that that's kind of the misnomer about this, is it's not just about taxing the rich. I think many people hear that, and it's certainly no surprise hearing from somebody who calls herself a, a democratic socialist that she wants to tax the rich. But this is really an all-encompassing thing, that it's attempting to totally wipe out, essentially, the, the carbon economy and switches all to renewable energy within 10 years. Uh, that's extreme legislation. That's something that will have a major shakeup of the American economy, and, and to do so, uh, it will require uh, basically command and cons- control-style policies that go far beyond anything we've heard of, even for most green advocates in the past. You write that it's no exaggeration to say that if implemented, the Green New Deal would upend our way of life and destroy the liberty and prosperity that Americans of all backgrounds currently uh, enjoy. Um, As you uh, alluded to, among its goals are meeting 100 percent of national power demand through renewable resources, retrofitting every residential and industrial building for state-of-the-art energy efficiency, comfort and safety. First of all, how do you pay for something like that? And is it even possible within the timeline that they have projected? Well, I think uh, most of the estimates show that it isn't possible, that the technology simply doesn't exist to go 100% onto renewable energy. I mean, most of our energy comes currently, uh, I mean, over 88% currently comes from fossil fuels one way or another. So in 10 years, uh, we're looking at projections that are just absolutely outside uh, the range of what we can do. And as far as paying for this, I would say it, it would be almost impossible to pay for what they're proposing, especially when you add on the addition of socialized medicine, uh, basic minimum income, a federal jobs guarantee, a, a shutting down of the carbon economy. I mean, that's that's. I mean, think about the the newfound kind of American energy independence that we've had through fracking and things like this. Uh, will be gone in an instant, and 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 the the amount of costs in our system, and we are total budget now is around $4 trillion, uh, the total cost would likely double and maybe even more uh, of what that budget is. This is something uh, that's simply unsustainable for the American people. Mm. Uh, The fact that it's a practical impossibility, putting that aside for a moment, uh, the deal would rely on the the bludgeoning of private industry and citizens through the levers of the state. This would be a very, uh, as you mentioned a moment ago, command and control style government, which would differ dramatically from what we've seen in the United States. This is more Cold War uh, Soviet Union type uh, leadership. It really is. I think that's one uh, thing that's very much notable in this plan is it says that essentially private uh, action isn't good enough, that essentially the government has to be controlling this. And a, a lot of studies out there that show that, well, hey, this is how we're going to move to 100% renewables in 10 years, uh, basically admit that it, it, under a democratic constitutional government, that wouldn't be possible unless we move to a kind of subsistence agricultural economy in which we, we wipe out most of the gains that our free market system has given us. Uh, this plan is simply uh, just unfeasible for the American people will destroy the wealth, not just for the rich, but for regular Americans of all backgrounds. It's a, it's a, it's a really, a, it really is an extreme plan. You write that the Green New, uh, New Deal contains a proposal for universal health care and a basic minimum income program to make, uh, make up for all the jobs lost in the process of transitioning to a fully green economy. This will all come with an immense cost, uh, something like $32.6 trillion over 10 years. 
And when you uh, take into account that the entire federal uh, budget in 2018 was $4 trillion, scratching one's head seems insufficient to, uh, to mark how puzzling this, uh, this is just in terms of penciling it out. It really is, and, and the kind of proposals that that, that, that she's come up with uh, have been really just insufficient, or really come down to you know many many times taxing uh, the American people to uh, borrow money to essentially put uh, these kind of public banks in the Federal Reserve in control of this kind of command and control style ideas to control the American economy. Uh, these are really extreme proposals, and I think if most people really start to dig beneath the surface, they'll find that even though the the, the plan itself sounds rather has some uh, very compelling uh, proponents, uh, that it really is something uh, more extreme than I think almost anything we've ever seen in this country's history and something that will do a massive amount of economic damage and upend our way of life. It's, it's definitely not an exaggeration to say that. Now, 40 Democrats have signed on to this uh, Green New Deal. Given the numbers in the, the House, how, how serious is this being considered and how likely is it, at least in the first run-up, uh, of the the Democrats controlling the House, is this likely to be taken seriously and and be given uh, time on the floor? Well, I think that some of the Democrat leaders have have so far balked a bit from this, but there is certainly a, what I call a kind of populist left wing surge in the Democrat Party. I mean, these ideas are are getting out there. I mean, just look in the last few days with with a new Democrat Congress, the House of Representatives passing things like ending the Electoral College and, and increasing taxes and things like this. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a way to stave off these kind of radical plans, and uh, so I, I do think, especially when you see the polls among millennials of a higher favorability towards ideas like socialism that I think many thought were were in the dustbin of history. I think that you are going to see more plans like this and a more kind of aggressive, strident left-wing socialism that many people wear now as a badge of honor. It would have terrible consequences for the American people. Well, Bernie Sanders, you point out, uh, recently noted in a CNN interview that his 2016 campaign helped make certain positions mainstream that were previously considered extreme and fringe. And I think this is the, the latest example of just that. I, I, I think so, too, and I think it's, that's why it's important to, to point out the cases, and especially in history and even today, where ideas like socialism, which Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez have tried to revive, uh, have not worked for, for people, uh, whether it be the Soviet Union in the most extreme cases. But even today, when we see countries like, like Venezuela that is in a state of absolute co- collapse, I mean, that, they use the name democratic socialism. I remind people that the regime there in Venezuela was originally democratically elected, that the, the tyranny and the terrible things came later when they implemented these disastrous policies that left people in the name of equality and left everybody equally uh, poor. Now, of course, Ocasio-Cortez would say, well, no, no, we're not trying to follow the Venezuelan model. We're going to follow the Swedish model, which many Swedes would reject as uh, an example of socialism. How would you respond to um, that reassurance that she offers? Oh, no, we're not looking to become Venezuela. We're looking to become Sweden and socialist in that, that model. Yes, I mean, I, I think it's obvious that she would try to re- reject the, the, the end results of her ideas. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, the, the way that the Green New Deal is structured is very much like what's happened in Venezuela, where they have had the government come in and take control of large part of the economy. The, the 
the comparison to Sweden is is inexact. I mean, Sweden has actually had some major turnarounds in that yes. country because they've gone more free market. They've gone less socialist, uh, and, and certainly in the last few decades, and it's actually made a more vibrant economy for them. So this idea that she can run away from the uh, the, the terrible ideas of socialism that have caused, hu- caused such human misery, I think that really needs to be pointed out. It's just not true. These policies lead to that point. Well, Jarrett Stepman, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. I'm sure we'll have uh, future conversations on the very same subject. Thank you very much. Thank you. Again, Jarrett Stepman is editor and commentator, uh, commentary writer, rather, for the uh, Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast, uh, talking about the Green New Deal. We'll continue to talk about that in the days ahead, but wanted to go, at least give uh, a little bit of a heads up on what's being proposed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow, we're looking forward to a conversation with uh, retired Judge Tom Cole. He is the co founder of Paid in Full. If you recall, his daughter was murdered here in this area a short time ago, as was his co founder, Rich Jones, the pastor of Calvary Chapel Hillsboro. And the, the uh, two of them uh, have developed this program that would provide seminary education in local uh, penitentiaries. We're going to talk with Judge Cole about the progress of this ministry, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing about the event that they held uh, late last year uh, in support of this effort. So he'll be joining us on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to continue our tribute uh, to James Blend, who served as the producer of this program. It will be 15 years ago this week that he began as the producer of the Georgine Rice Show. He does other things here as well, but we're going to uh, talk a bit about how he arrived at KPDQ, what his background and history was and what his aspirations are and some of the other things that he does here at the station. So we'll look forward to uh, having a little chat with James Blend um, at 15. So that's uh, coming up on the Friday show. Well, there is a battle going on as to whether or not you should have the right to be forgotten. Now, that seems contrary to the cultural trend where everyone wants to be liked and uh, followed and known and recognized and all of those things. But Google has been in a battle in France that has the uh, uh, potential to impact what Google can and cannot do, will or will not do elsewhere. Well, this battle against French proponents of a worldwide right to be forgotten has entered a decisive phase at the European Union's top court on uh, last Thursday, um, or rather coming up this Thursday, in a case that highlights the growing tension between privacy, freedom of speech, and state censorship. Well, ahead of a ruling later this year, an advisor at the EU Court of Justice uh, will on the 10th deliver an opinion on whether the world's most used search engine can limit the geographical scope of the privacy rights to EU-based searchers. Now, Google has been fighting efforts led by France's privacy watchdog to globalize the right to be forgotten after the EU court's uh, landmark ruling in 2014, forcing the search engine to remove links to information about a person on request if it's outdated or irrelevant. The Alphabet Inc. unit currently removes such uh, links, the EU-wide, and since 2016, it also restricts access to information on the non-EU Google sites when accessed from an EU country where the person concerned by the information is located. Well, the worldwide solution would put global search engine providers um, in the middle of a conflict of law problem, uh, where on the one hand, they might be subject to an obligation to enable freedom of speech, and in the EU, they'd be invited to suppress it. Um, So it's a rather interesting case. Uh, But Google is uh, currently clashing over this um, right to be forgotten, 
which again may have the um, the impact of or have the result of impacting um, others outside of the EU as well. And we learned today that Portland Public Schools systematically failed to provide adequate support to its schools that enroll a concentration of low-income students of color. And as uh, a predictable result, produces poorer outcomes for those students than nearly all its peer districts in Oregon. That's a new state audit. The district doesn't take sensible steps to place excellent principals in those high-need schools and then focus on keeping them there for many years, nor has it worked to reduce high absenteeism and turnover among teachers in those same schools. The year-long review by the Secretary of State's Audit Division found... Well, students and families of color who would benefit greatly from trusting, lasting relationships with highly skilled educators instead of encounter a revolving doors, a door rather, of principals and new to the profession teachers. Well, Beach Elementary, for instance, currently has its fourth principal in six years. District records uh, indicate Lentz K-12 has its fourth leader in five years. At schools with the highest concentration of Latino and black students, teachers and other certified staffers are twice as likely to leave as at schools with few Latino or black students, according to the audit. Well, the audit compared Portland results, including test scores, how many classes freshmen pass, graduate rates and college going ratings, uh, Uh, to those of 12 other largest uh, districts in Oregon, plus two smaller districts in or near Portland. When it comes to low-income Latino students, 11 of those districts clearly outperform Portland Public Schools, the audit found. Of the nine districts with enough low-income black students to make a valid comparison, five clearly outperformed Portland, and none did worse. So this is a Portland problem. The district tends to overload high-need schools with too many new initiatives, the audit found, and the district hadn't carried through on plans to redraw attendance boundaries so that high-poverty, high-minority schools, uh, such as Martin Luther King Jr. School with just 320 students across six grades, have enough students to offer robust programming. Teachers at high-poverty schools were absent on average of four weeks a year, about a week more than teachers at other Portland schools, the audit found, and three times as many of those absentees, or absences rather, were not covered by substitutes um, as at uh, low-poverty schools, as principals are struggling to find substitutes willing to work at their schools. Well, that suggests that teachers, uh, teacher absenteeism at these high-poverty, high-minority schools cause more disruption to learning. You don't have the same teachers. Uh, you, can't have, you can't find substitutes to fill in when your teachers are absent. The district has only uh, this year begun to develop a uniform core curriculum for all the schools and to try to improve and standardize instructional training for teachers and principals, according to the audit. And after wholesale a change in leadership, the district has made improvements and plans more improvements. But it risks taking too long to complete needed changes. I remember being a part of a movement here in the city of Portland to try to encourage giving parents the freedom to choose to place their uh, children in schools that they thought better fit their students' needs. And that has been uh, an effort that had faced a lot of pushback because there was always going to be on the over the horizon an improvement in Portland public schools. There was always going to be something better coming up. And generations of students have, have to live through what has been less than favorable outcomes. In a national comparison, some districts with less money per pupil to spend than Portland, including Charlotte, Austin, and the Cherry Creek District near Denver, uh, nevertheless achieved superior results on key metrics, the audit found. Portland spends at least 20% more per student than the 12 next largest districts in Oregon. The audit found most of those serve a higher share of impoverished 
uh, students than Portland does. So, again, this is a Portland problem, and I appreciate the audit. But what new round of solutions they come up with this time around will be interesting. And how many generations will live through that experiment without necessarily reaching optimum results? Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Tom Cole. He's the co-founder of Paid in Full. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up. So I hope you will plan on joining us for that. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.